Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Our devices have really accentuated the introduction of novelty. And if that is what you're oriented towards, novelty or titillation, is that going to be fertile soil to then plant an appreciation for the true, the good, and the beautiful? And welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandia, the host of the show, and today I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation with Sean Clifford, CEO of Canopy US. Good morning, Sean, and welcome to our show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Sean, in a nutshell, and before we dive deeper into today's topic, what is Canopy US? Canopy is a technology company that's bringing some cutting-edge advances to the United States to try and protect families from some of the dangers of the online world. We think technology is amazing. It is, at some level, inevitable, and we want families to be able to benefit from all the amazing things that our technology can bring us without some of the downsides, the costs, the risks that usually attend it. And our first product is focused on protecting families from pornography which I know from your podcast was discussed at length. It's everywhere. It's much more prevalent. It's darker than it ever has been. And we really think it's critical that for kids in particular to not be exposed to it at the rates that they are. So our first product is something that can really help families enjoy the good of the online world without the bad. Wow. Thank you. So yes, that's exactly what we have on the show. We want to continue. We promised that we would have continued conversation on pornography. This is the second episode on the topic. It's not the last. But before we talk more about what Canopy is and what pornography is today, because you have a lot of experience and by now an expert on what the online pornography world is and what parents should be careful about when giving you know, a smartphone or a computer to their children. And I'm sure our audience wants to hear about that. I would like to spend a couple of words about you. So I know that Canopy is a young company. What did you do before Canopy? What is your background? Great. So prior to Canopy, I was at another startup here in Austin. But before that, I had spent about 10 years in Washington, D.C., engaged in the work of public affairs, where we were helping companies, nonprofits, and organizations navigate broader political, cultural, and technological trends. And it was actually during that time where I was doing work for some tech companies and also work for a number of organizations that really cared about the health of the American family. And in the course of executing some of those projects that developed some conviction that technology, while bringing some amazing things, was also creating challenges for raising children in particular and started to think, gosh, how can we do this better? Are we going to be able to solve some of these problems when it didn't look like Silicon Valley was attentive to them at the outset? So that was some of the background then led into Canopy. Just the other thing of note, kind of near and dear to the work that you guys are doing, I received a master's from St. John's College and the great books of Western civilization, which was a wonderful educational experience and has, in many respects, shaped how we think about some of the issues that we're tackling. Yeah, I was about to ask you something about that in a little bit, but let's go there now. Like... I know that our audience will know soon what you do in this field and protecting people from, you know, the bad things that can be on the internet. But my question is, do you see any correlation between your education in the great books and the work you do now? And of course, by the way, was, yeah, I do see the correlation, but I want to hear from you and you're in your own words. Absolutely. So the great books collectively ask many very important questions. One of the questions is, 
how can we flourish? How can we live well with change? How can we regulate our appetites? And these are all questions that in one way, shape, or form are at the heart of what we're trying to do at Canopy. We're positing that technology is not going away. We think technology is, you know, the the smartphone, the device, the way it's been integrated into modern life is here. We're not going to be able to completely get rid of that. So we have to figure out how we can live well with it. How can we live with wisdom acknowledging this status quo? And the second is, how can we raise the next generation and pass on our culture, our values, when they're now exposed to so much more that we have much less ability today as parents to really curate and cultivate what those educational opportunities are for them, what those inputs are, per se. So that's kind of a second big question. And then the third is, how can we regulate our appetites? Because there are many things, and this is not a new problem. We have always had temptations, things that are deeply alluring, but we previously have had more cultural institutions that try and establish what you should consume, in what quantities and when, and how are those things anchored towards higher purposes. And so figuring out how you know the modern world that we live in is wrestling with these questions and how tools like Canopy can actually facilitate families that are really trying to wrestle with this, I think is, is something that's been a rich experience to draw upon. So I'm immensely grateful for it. The last thing that I'll just quickly say is, you know, throughout much of civilization, there has been interest in the true, the good, and the beautiful. And one of the things that we're trying to reconcile right now is our devices have really accentuated the introduction of novelty. And if that is what you're oriented towards, novelty or titillation, is that going to be fertile soil to then plant an appreciation for the true, the good, and the beautiful? And that's tricky. And so not to go too far into the esoteric or abstract, but so many of the questions that have come up in the great books from that were written hundreds of years ago are very much front and center in what we're trying to do today as well. So I'm very grateful for it. It is fascinating what we're just saying about novelty. And for those that you know, know a little more about pornography and how it works and how it shapes the brain, we discussed this, the novelty part in the, it's part of the modern phenomenon of pornography, right? Because there is always this search for a stimulus that is more and diverse from what we had yesterday. It's not certainly the spousal love that you have with your wife where you just, you know, know her more and more, but it's always the same person in front of you. You are the father of four children. So also I would say, you know, this interest in protecting children and creating a culture around them that is conducive to flourishing is, of course, you know, as a father, you feel it as something you want to do. You mentioned you lived in Austin. I just want to take credit that we will talk about why and how you've been in the news recently because what you're doing for families and for children has now been translated to something that can be offered to adults that are struggling with pornography. But I would like to say, you know, to our credit that we did get in contact with you at the Austin Institute before that was the case, like realizing that pornography is certainly the issue that needs to be discussed today. So what do internet filters do usually? Why would families want them? What does Canopy do in particular? Traditional internet filters are able to identify bad websites and then prevent access to them. So that was kind of the initial foray into internet filtering. And for a time, it was effective. When the internet had black sites and white sites, things that were problematic and things that were acceptable, that approach worked. We've since moved to a completely different landscape where instead of black and white, we have 50 shades of gray in between. You can now find pornography 
almost everywhere. There's the proliferation of new porn websites, but even put that aside for a second. You can go to places like Reddit or Twitter or other social media platforms where you wouldn't expect it, but it's popping up. So in this new landscape, the approach of having an outdated list of bad websites that was created last week just doesn't cut it. So that was really the opportunity that we had identified and where we thought technology could play a role to kind of address that need that still remains. Canopy is able to offer a solution that's a little bit different by leveraging some really impressive advances that were initially pulled together in Israel. And there's two things in particular. First, our team in Israel developed artificial intelligence that can identify pornographic content in images and videos with 99.7% accuracy. So this is artificial intelligence that just can scan everything and then actually identify what's those things that are not appropriate to be seen. Secondly, the team figured out how to do this in real time, in milliseconds. So when you combine these things together, if you go to a brand new website created five minutes ago, never been scanned before, never been tagged, and it contains pornographic content, our filter that's on the device will be able to pick that up in 20 to 30 milliseconds and block access before any of it populates on your screen. So that's kind of the first thing. We block pornography that other filters miss. The second application, which I think makes us a little bit distinct, is that we are able to filter within websites. So again, going back to the example of Twitter or Reddit, you can have memes and educational content and entertainment, but you can also find a lot of pornography. With our filter in place, we can find the pornographic content and just pull it out and still serve up all of the good. And that's why one of the things we talk about is with Canopy, you're able to enjoy the good of the online world without the bad. And that's specifically because of the real-time AI-based filter that we have. So that's kind of really what distinguishes us and we think what permits us to address the challenge of the modern internet, which is as dynamic. We like to think that our tool is as dynamic as the internet itself. And I realize, Sean, that I am taking for granted that the audience already knows why it is a big challenge and it is something we need to address. But Maybe, I hope not, but maybe someone in our audience doesn't really know why this online pornography is an issue that affects every single family. And so regardless of, you know, how much you homeschool your children and you protect them from everything, this is something you should actually seriously consider. So instead of, you know, me speaking or like, can you tell parents what this online pornography word is and why they should not think that, as long as you raise your child well, this is never going to happen. Such a great question. Yes. So a couple things to say about this. And Dr. Jimmy Myers made this point and articulated it very well. There's a difference between old porn, which was epitomized by Playboy, and new porn, which is epitomized by Pornhub. It used to be that you had to work hard to find pornography. And when you did, it was bad. I'm not condoning Playboy for a second. But it was relatively tame by comparison to what you might find online today. New pornography finds you. The majority of American children will be exposed to hardcore pornography before they enter middle school. Over 60% of those incidents are accidental. They're unintentional. So even when you're not looking for it, it finds your kids, which is so important for parents to know because we often hear, I have good kids. And the truth is you probably do have good kids, but that's not enough. If your kid is online, it finds them. It pops up in all the places. So as parents get out there, I think understanding that it's more prevalent today, it actually finds your kids, even if your kids don't look for it. And it's also just a lot darker and more addictive. By darker, I mean, 
it is much more graphic, much more violent, and includes topics and themes that are very, very problematic that I think would make a lot of people deeply uncomfortable. And part of the reason that that's the case, and again, Dr. Myers talked about this, is in the need for ever greater novelty, people have to keep kind of pushing the boundaries of what's out there to get that same dopamine hit. If you watch on a consistent basis, and it's addictive, so people do, it keeps pushing the envelope further and further from where people start. It's an escalating addiction. And so that's the darkness. And then just the last point is, it's addictive. The science on this is so clear now. It is shaping the brains. It's especially problematic when you're exposed early as the brain is still developing. And it's so intense. It's so accessible. It's so universal. And it offers unending novelty. And the combination of the things has a profound impact, not only in the actual shape of the brain, what's being wired, but also in all the psychological things that we care about, how you think about intimacy, how you think about relationships, what you think is normal. Most of these things are moving in a very problematic direction. I'll say this last thing. You know, the average American boy who's been watching pornography for, let's say, three years from the time he was 15 through he's 18 will have seen over 10,000 images of naked women. To go from that to having the ability to enter into a healthy relationship is very tricky and hard to do. And so thinking about that and the way it shapes us is, you know, parents, I think, need to understand that in order to take the actions that they need to safeguard their kids and really give them a fighting chance. And so would you say also as a parent and not only as a CEO of a company that works on this, do they need to talk about this with their children? You need to have these conversations earlier than you might want. You need to have these conversations often. What do you mean by early? Well, I'll give you one example. We had a conversation with a youth leader who every year had a conversation. He was a youth pastor. He had a conversation with middle school students about pornography. And after doing this for years, he actually moved that conversation to the elementary school session. And the parents were outraged. They thought, what on earth are you doing talking to my elementary school kid about this topic? And his response was, by the time they get to middle school, they've already been exposed. They've already learned about pornography, not from you or from me, but from Pornhub, from Google, from older classmates at school. And so if you actually want to help your child understand this and provide them some healthy guardrails along the way, you have to have the conversation early. And that's so hard to do. It's uncomfortable. My oldest two kids are nine and seven. I do not want to talk about these issues. I think it's way too early, but I have to because they're on technology. And if you're on technology, the odds and the data is so clear that the likelihood your kid is exposed is very high. So having the conversations early is critical because you want them to have an understanding of what this is, what it means, how should they conceive about it from you. And look, as they get older, their brains will start to ask questions. And again, you really want to make sure that they have a healthy way to wrestle with that and understand that. Because if they're not getting that from you, they're going to Google. And Google probably does not have you know, that search engine the same. What is populated when you type in certain questions? You don't really know what that's going to be coming from. So speak to them early, speak to them often. Yeah, speak to them early about pornography. And also there is another phenomenon that maybe many parents are not aware of and that I know your technology also helps fighting is sexting. Would you say a couple of words about that? Yeah, so sexting is a phenomenon that just blows my mind. It has become so much more prevalent. The pre-pandemic stats that I have are one out of seven American teenagers has sent to sext a nude image of themselves that's transmitted via their device. One out of four has received one. And the most recent one was that two-thirds of American teenage girls have been asked 
to send a nude image of themselves. And again, these are all pre-pandemic figures. During the first three months of the lockdown, the search for how to send a sex tripled on Google. And so it's become so much more prevalent and it is really problematic. And needless to say, it's, it's the sexualization of children, which obviously we think is very problematic and wrong, but it also results in digital content. Digital is forever, right? Getting out there into the world. And so I hate to say it, but I've had too many conversations with parents, usually of girls who have sent a nude photo of themselves to a boyfriend at the time. They break up and then the image gets distributed more broadly within their school. And it just crushes these girls. And it has lasting negative impact. It's devastating and it's so sad to see. And so it sets them their life on a different trajectory that usually is not a healthy or as a good one. So we're trying to intervene to stop that. I think the first part is just we have to educate parents about this. And they in turn need to speak to their kids about digital is forever and what kind of content is appropriate to send. The rule of thumb we have is only share the photos that you'd be comfortable having go to the whole school and your grandmother, right? And if you keep that in mind, I think it serves as some deterrent. The other thing that we're trying to do is our technology has an opt-in feature such that if a parent turns it on, we're able to scan every image taken by a smartphone as it hits the memory of the device. So if you either save an image or you take an image and it's saved to your camera roll, we can inspect it and determine if it contains nudity or minimal clothing, like a bikini or lingerie. And if it does, we'll flag for the user, hey, are you sure you meant to take that? And at that point, they can either delete it if it's not appropriate or send it to a parent for approval, which hopefully they wouldn't do if it is in fact inappropriate. Wow, this is great. So I get it that from the work you do, the answer is probably obvious, but like you do not think that the solution is just, well, don't give them, don't give them technology, you know, and just give your children technology only later on when they are already capable of handling it. It's a great question. It's a very tough question. My own personal posture in my home is I'd like to delay the adoption of technology as long as I can. But that's very difficult in a world. And the pandemic only accelerated this, but so much of school rook is now being pushed online. So much of normal teen interaction is taking place online. And it's difficult to separate out a teenager's social life from their digital life. And so I don't think technology is going away. And so I think we have to figure out how to live with it well. And part of that is creating a trajectory for our children to adopt it and learn how to use it well in a gradual process where as they become more mature and demonstrate responsibility, they get more freedom. Because at the end of the day, they're going to venture off into the world and we want them to have that independence that they want. But we also want them to have the understanding of how to use it well. And so that's a process. It's like driving a car, right? You don't hand an eight-year-old keys and just say, good luck, right? You walk them through the process of learning how to drive and drive responsibly. Because at the end of the day, they want that freedom. You want them to have that, but to enjoy it and use it responsibly. As I said at the beginning, you made the news recently because basically from my understanding is that the app that was originally meant for children is now also good for adults. So people that are struggling with pornography, young adults or older that, you know, they just want to get rid of it and they don't want to do it anymore. How does this filter work in that case? So who's responsible then for it? How do I make sure that, well, you know, you install that filter. How do you make sure you don't just disinstall it? It's a great question. So here in the United States, our current focus remains on helping parents protect kids. In Israel, where our technology was developed, they now have the application just for adults. And there, there are different ways you can do it. Look, oftentimes what people will do is they'll have a friend 
and they'll give the password to them, whether that's a spouse or someone who wants to be their accountability partner, to ensure that they're not able to easily just take it off or remove it or bypass it. Because a filter that is easily circumvented is not something that's going to be very effective. And so that's kind of the application there. We would love to kind of bring that part over here because we receive a lot of requests from adults that say, I'm so glad I can protect my kids, but I also need to protect myself. This is a temptation. This is something that I've struggled with. And the language around that struggle is one of seeking freedom from it. They feel trapped. They feel addicted. They want to stop and they've tried and they can't. And so they're so hungry for a way, a tool that can actually help them break from that gravitational pull, right? And get into orbit. That's one of the analogies that we think is an app. So that's something that, again, in Israel has been deployed. And we think we're very encouraged by the feedback there. And the other thing, the other extensions of this that we're really excited about is we're now starting to deploy this with broader organizations, whether it's law enforcement or tech companies that empower them to identify the content that they don't want on their platforms if it's an organization. So a big tech company that can scan all new images and videos to make sure none of them include child pornography or or as it's now called child sexual abuse material or CSAM, or law enforcement agencies. Right now, when law enforcement arrests someone who's suspected of trafficking in CSAM, they have to confiscate all the devices, download all the data, And then a human agent has to comb through some of the most horrific content out there in order to pull together the evidence. And you can imagine how traumatizing and problematic that is to do that day after day. So we've taken our machine, trained it to identify CSAM content. And now in in about 20 minutes, we can comb through a terabyte of data, pull out all of the problematic material, blur it, and then provide that to the agents so that they don't manually have to do that saving them from that experience and giving them the opportunity to press forward. Thank you, Sean, for this. I was just about to mention the great work that you've done in developing these tools to help this technology company and law enforcement agencies to identify child sexual abuse material. And I think we need to stress that pornography often, very often involves exploitation sexual exploitation. This is something that all the people that watch it and people that think, you know, we're only dealing with a problem. Yeah, we're also dealing with a lot of crime and a lot of modern time slavery and abuse in children. You can be proud, I think, of your words, your company. They recently received a technology solution award from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And I would say, you know, if they know you deserve it, you definitely do. What I would like to ask you is, what is it that filters and that canopy, for instance, or other filters cannot do and that A, parents must do or B, policymakers must do? Fantastic question. Such an important question because there's a deep hunger out there for silver bullets. And we fundamentally don't think silver bullets in this space exist. There is not a tool that is going to forever protect you from ever being exposed. In part because you can lock down all the devices in your home and your kid can still go next door. They can go to the library. They can go somewhere else. It's very difficult to prevent people in modern America from satiating their appetites if they really, really want to. So completely endorse this idea that there's no silver bullet and that we have to take steps above and beyond adopting filters on our devices. So I'll walk through kind of on the technical side and then let's walk through on the parenting side and then we can move up to society. The one thing that a lot of filters aren't able to do right now is filter all content, right? So we filter within all web browsers. 
We are unable to filter within all apps. There's some encryption challenges there. So we give parents the opportunity to block apps that may contain inappropriate content. We think we might have a way in the coming months or year to address that, but you know, it's always going to be a game of escalation. And so we think in addition to a good external filter, you also need a good internal filter. Can you, just a second, can you explain what you just said, what it is that you can block and you cannot block? Because maybe some of the parents are not very clear on the difference. Absolutely. Yes. So let's talk about how you typically engage with content on a smart device. There are apps. An app could be Instagram, it could be Snapchat, it could be Facebook. These are three of the most popular apps. Or I guess TikTok has now supplanted Facebook. So let's talk Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok. These are apps. You also have browsers, which is like a Safari or a Chrome where you can access the internet, all the websites that are out there. So on a web browser like Safari or Chrome, we're able to filter all content with Canopy's filter, irrespective of the website. Brand new website, old website, we filter all websites. We are unable to filter within all apps. We can't filter right now within Snapchat. We can't filter right now within the Twitter app. And so that's a gap. So what we do is we give parents the ability to block Snapchat and block the Twitter app and then direct their kids to use twitter.com within a browser where they can still enjoy the content, but just from a protected vantage point. So that's one of the areas where there's a technological gap. It's really dependent on some of the encryption steps that these apps have taken. We think we might have a way to address that down the road. It's not there just yet. But even if we get there, there's always going to be another device out there, right? And so we think we've got the most effective tool right now on the planet to block access to pornography. And yet, we're not perfect. We're trying. So what should parents do on top of like doing this thing with Canopy? What do you think other roles of parents are in this? We, we mentioned conversations. Yeah, so it's, look, the external filter is an app like Canopy. The internal filter is equipping your child for how they'll respond when they are exposed to pornography. So when they first see it, what is it? What should they do? And then, you know, the answer is come talk to a parent and have the conversation with them so that they understand, first of all, why some of that exists. I think if you can demystify it a little bit, that will equip them to navigate it a little bit better and to really tell them there are things out there that will be tempting and alluring, but they're not healthy or good for them. And so equipping them in that sense and providing them with the understanding why that's the case. That why I think is so very important because it's very natural to ask certain questions, especially once you reach a certain age. And the outside world is more than happy, given its hypersexualized nature right now, to provide them things that are alluring. Equipping your child for how to handle that and to understand that they're different, right? That they don't need to succumb just because something seems normal or has been widely adopted. It's critical. It's hard to do. It's very hard to do, but I think that's important. Let's zoom out a little bit. I think you need to tribe up. It is so much easier to do this if your children and your family are in close proximity and in community with other people that share these values. Because you know, one of the most common places that children are exposed is from upperclassmen at a school or from older siblings. And you know, difficult to fully safeguard against all that. But if you're living your life with other people who want your kids to have a fighting chance to have healthy relationships so much easier if you've got that pre-existing community and you don't feel isolated or weird because you're not partaking in something that is increasingly normalized. Then you go one step above that to kind of the societal level. And I think that there's broader questions out there. Whether you want to focus explicitly on pornography or whether you want to talk about 
our culture that is hypersexualized right now in the news and entertainment kind of across the board. And it is sending signals to our children about what's acceptable, what's normal, what's healthy. And right now, the status quo is very much at odds with what's healthy, which we know from the science. And it's very much at odds with what actually leads people to become happy. You know, there's so many studies that are coming out about how problematic this stuff is, whether it's the traumatic impact of sexual exploitation or the psychological impact of constantly being bombarded with sexualized images. And addressing it at that level is critical. That's going to take time. That's a big mountain that needs to be climbed and tackled, but we've got to start locally and then start working up. Thank you, Sean. You know a lot about this stuff. And, you know, I can hear, by the way, you're describing the issues from all those different sides, how much you've been thinking about it. But the question about the policy, like I know that recently there was a so-called victory for people that are fighting against pornography with Google Chrome. Like what I've read is that now their products, K-12 and their default settings for schools are sort of safe for children, or I don't know if you have, you know, another opinion if they're not safe enough. I have no idea what's your take on it. Another thing that comes to mind for me in this issue is the famous, very famous Section 230 of the Communication and Decency Act that says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, which is the reason why Pornhub I think as well, but like, let's say Spotify, as we are airing this podcast, would not be responsible for any of the things we're saying in this process, right? So none of the provider takes any responsibility for the content that is out there. So if you may say something, you know, I brought two issues in the questions, like the safety of the things we buy and then the law. What's your take on these things? Look, I think the challenge that I'm most interested in right now is if you are a parent that wants to exercise more control over the inputs that are served up to your kid, you don't have recourse to do that. It is very challenging to do that. And so I want to identify ways to shift that locus of control from big tech, from advertisers and marketers, from other entities online that may have ulterior motives that are contrary to what you want for your family from them back to the family. And the way that you do that, it's got to be a multi-front effort, kind of tackling it at every level. There's got to be a technological solution. There has to be a cultural solution, by which I mean there has to be public pressure brought to bear in order to make that possible. Because right now, if you want your kid not to be exposed to things, it's really hard to do. You can't opt out, right? Right now, with so much of our technology, it's either you get all of it or you get none of it. And we hope that Canopy can be part of that solution but it will only be as effective as our ability to intervene. And there are efforts out there made to disrupt the types of things that we're doing. So I think that public pressure needs to be brought to bear. I think that's actually starting to happen. I think the recent decision by Google about Chromebook was sparked out of an outcry of parents who said, my kid was forced to use Chromebook for school and I found them looking at this. And there wasn't any option for me to prevent that from happening within Chromebook. And so that sparked a corporate decision at a very high level that I think is really going to be beneficial for millions of families. And so I think taking the steps there, look, on Section 230, it's a, it's a very complicated issue. And there are so many things out there. I'm not sure that Section 230 is originally drafted, had in mind the dynamism of the internet as it exists today. But I think even if you're able to amend it, you can address one problem, which is even if platforms have responsibility 
to pull off some of the most problematic content that's illegal from their platforms, like CSAM. It still doesn't fully address the issue of if people want something, they can go out and find it. And that, to me, is the issue that we need to address if we're really going to prevail on this. We need people to understand the consequences, the challenges, the cost of this type of content, especially for kids, and persuade them to want something better. If you get that, all the other things we care about, from the corporate decisions to individual family decisions to public policy itself, will fall into place. Yeah, I think it's helpful, you know, somehow it's funny, not in a nice way, but to think that if because of Section 230, whenever we hear that some things have been censored, we should remember that that's a decision of the provider, of the directory, but it's not something that they are bound to do by law based on the content because actually they're not bound to censor anything. Like They do not take any responsibility for whatever it is that they are showing on their website. What I wanted to ask you about policies, like what's your thought about having pornography declared a public health emergency, which I know happened in some states? Yeah, so I believe that there are 16 or 17 states where pornography has been declared public health crisis. And when you look at the efforts behind that, first, it, it's important to note it's non-binding, right? It simply declares that and to try and establish and raise awareness about the challenge that's out there. If you're looking exclusively at the science, if you're just looking at the, you know, the advances in neuroscience give us the opportunity to understand how pornography does impact the brain. Longitudinal studies give us the opportunity to understand how it impacts the body as well. Social science has given us the opportunity to understand how it impacts how you think about other people, how you think about intimacy, how you think about relationship. There's a trove of data about how it impacts marriage and divorce, right? Divorce rates that cite pornography as the principal cause of divorce are rising. So when you look at all of the trends and all of the ways that pornography is impacting you know, our overall health, I think it is quite clear that it's very problematic. And it is especially problematic for kids. And so I think that like, it's difficult to look at the data and walk away with the conclusion that it's not causing a whole host of health issues that aren't of concern to the public and society at large. Yeah, and back to the Google Chrome thing, I think that, you know, it's a great move. It shows that public awareness and the demand for something that is safe works. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that this thing they did with their Chromebooks will set an example also for other companies that want to offer their products to children. I hope that by now, the parents that are listening have understood how important it is to think about this a little more than they did and not to think, oh, I just, you know, I, I bought this filter like five years ago, we installed this thing, we're sure we're fine. Maybe you want to look into that a little more. And I want to say, we're not being sponsored by you in any way. There is no compensation for this, you know, for saying how great your company is. We will provide a link for people to install these filters. There will be a discount code as well for the people that are listening to this podcast or reaching it from a link. I wanted to say this. Are there other companies out there that you would recommend to parents? Is there something else you want to say before we close this episode and hopefully have you another time to talk about the things that you're trying to work on, like the in-app websites? Well, again, immensely grateful for the opportunity to talk about this. I think this is one of the greatest challenges that we need to confront if families are to flourish. And so we are grateful to be in the arena, pushing forward on this and always thankful for the opportunity to raise awareness. The advice that I would give to parents is twofold. Number one, find a tool that works for what you need. And there are different tools out there that address different needs. So for example, 
if you are an adult looking for accountability, Covenant Eyes provides accountability. And that's a good tool for that. If you are a parent and you're looking to understand how your child is interacting on social media, Bark is a good monitoring tool for that. If you're looking to really manage and monitor your child's screen time, Circle has some good tools for that. So understanding what it is that you want to do. For us at Canopy, if you want to prevent your kids from being exposed to pornography, we think that's where we really offer the most value. But it's understanding what your core need is, what's most important to you, and then finding the right tools that can help you do that. To parent in the online world is hard, but you need to do it. The second thing I would say is find guides and resources. The online world right now is the Wild West. It's dynamic. Anything goes. It's so fast-paced. Part of that makes it exciting, but it also brings with it a number of dangers. And unlike my generation, when I grew up, new technology was adopted slowly, and usually the parents would develop the etiquette around it, and then they would pass that on to their kids. Kids today are the first users of many of these platforms, and they're the ones that are developing the etiquette around it. And so find the guide and the resource that you trust that will serve as a scout along the way to help you understand what your kids interacting with. What's Twitch? What's Discord? These are two very popular apps. What's this new meme? How should you think about that? And there are lots of tools that are out there, lots of guides that are out there that really provide an excellent roadmap for parents and equip them to have conversations with their kids and to make it a little bit less overwhelming. So find a tool that really fits your need and then find a guide that can really help you and your child along the way so that you're not bearing the full burden of understanding this crazy new digital world that we live in. Yes, thank you very much, Sean. And just before leaving, I just would like to say it again. Most of the kids that come into contact with pornography, they do it unintentionally. Unintentionally, which means you can educate them as you know greatly as you want, but that it's just going to happen. It's not because they're bad kids. It just happens. And then it works in a way that we've heard from Dr. Myers. It works in a way that it's in many ways not totally in their control. So this is something that you need to take care of as parents, as educator, as society in general. We need to be aware that this is an issue and we all need to work to make sure that the human flourishing is really a flourishing in all respects, including when it comes to love and relationship and sexual and romantic relationships. Sean, I want to thank you again for your time, for the great work you do. Again, we'll provide the links to your website. And yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.